Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Roth. I'm from Northern Ireland. We feel uncomfortable when you're nice. When I moved to America, it would be so pleasant. In Northern Ireland, we show our love by attacking each other. <laughs> we like somebody to attack them. So I'm like, Northern Ireland, we're famous for like things like the Titanic, right? We built the Titanic and the DeLorean car. So that's the kind of place that I'm from. Right? <laughs> the English drove the Titanic. Right? It wasn't supposed to be driven into an iceberg. It was fine when it left Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lorian car, that was my drugs. That wasn't our problem either. So um, I really appreciate the invite to, to be part of this with you. Um, I'm excited about um, presenting some ideas. Uh, you might wonder why I've got Comrade Stalin with me. Uh, I, uh, I'm just going to move this up a little bit. Uh, I saw Ayn Rand out there and Margaret Thatcher. So I didn't see a statue of, of Stalin, so I thought I'd get When I was young, uh, I had a friend who, first time he was ever speaking, just an aside, but the first time he was ever speaking, a massive group, thousands of people, he was like 17 years old, very nervous, and he really prepared this talk, and at a certain point, the minister says, you know, and now Gar's going to come up and give a short talk, and he got up, and all the lights went down, and the sound guy put on the theme tune from uh, Star Wars. <laughs> and then this massive image, this huge screen, came up of the battle in Return of the Jedi that ends with the destruction of the Death Star. Right? So this bam, 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 and then he gets up, stands up on stage, the lights go up. And he gives this talk for his 15 minutes. And then he comes and sits down beside me, and I'm like, oh, that was a really interesting talk, but what was the thing about the Death Star? Like, oh, no, he forgot to mention it. Everyone was sitting there going, it was an interesting talk, but why did the Jeff Washington the So I always worry that I'm going to give a whole talk, forget to mention Stalin. <laughs> it was an interesting talk, but why did he have a picture of Stalin? So hopefully I'll remember. If not, there is a reason. <laughs> so what, what I want to offer is, I suppose, a, a kind of a religionless reading of Christianity. Um, I want to I want to look at this notion of doubt, um, questioning, uncertainty, but I want to take it to the next level. So what I'm going to be arguing for is, is where do we go from the position of subjective doubt, which most of you probably embrace, uh, to what I could call liturgical doubt. Now, I can't fit everything into this one session, and uh, we won't get to the liturgical dimension in, a, in, a, in as deep a way as I would like. But I want to hint at what I mean through this talk, but I've got to kind of lay a framework before I get there. But I am a big believer in the church and the liturgy, and I want to try to argue why. Why I think that the role, because basically the technology of theology is liturgy. Um, you know, all disciplines have their technology. So biology will have yeah, you know, surgery or chemistry will have uh, you know, potions and you know, drugs. Uh, so uh, different disciplines have their technology. The technology of theology is the liturgical structure. So I want to talk a little bit about what that technology is designed to do and why it's potentially got something profound to offer today. Uh, but as I say, first of all, I want to offer a bit of a framework. 
And to start with, um, I'll mention a story from back in Northern Ireland where I'm from. During the Troubles, uh, it was a common practice for the IRA to plant an incendiary device in a building and then phone up the police and say, you've got like, you know, 15 minutes to get everybody out, right? So this happened on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, you know, you'd be in a swimming pool or whatever, you'd get the, the message and you'd all have to ship out. And so there was a story going around at the time about this guy, Seamus, right, who was in the IRA. And he dies and he goes up to heaven and he's up at 30 minutes and he's waiting. And eventually, uh, St. Peter comes out with a big dusty book from behind the gates, sets it down on the table and opens the book. And he's looking in the book for about five, ten minutes. And then he looks up at Seamus. He says, Seamus, your name's not in the book. You're in the IRA. You're not getting in. And Seamus looked at him and said, no, no, no. He says, you misunderstand. I don't want to get in. You've got 15 minutes to get out. <laughs> I think that captures the radical message of Christianity. I want to try to unpack that a little bit. We're all trying to get in to heaven. We're all trying to get away from the doubt, the grit, the grime of the world. We all want to get to the, the sacred place. But actually, the role is to get the absolute out of the heavenly realm into the grit of the world. And I want to kind of like unpack what that means. So what I want to start with then is an insight that Archbishop Tillotson in the 17th century had. So he's an archbishop and he noticed that magicians would often use this term hocus pocus when they were about to do a magic trick, right? And he realized that hocus pocus is probably a bit of a kind of, what do you call it here, but like a kind of piss take of the Eucharist right after the church, right? It's a, it's a mockery, right? It probably comes from hawk s corpus, right? So what the magicians were saying is, we're doing a magic trick, and we say hocus pocus, but you know, everyone knows it's just a magic trick. The priests, they say hawk s corpus, and they think that bread and wine turns into the body and blood. You know, they're kind of charlatans, right? So Tillotson noticed this and he said, right, okay, well, the thing, and he actually is a, as a good enlightenment kind of Protestant, uh, was concerned with the, with the Catholic transubstantiation doctrine. And he said, yes, no, the, the communion is not a magic trick, right? The Catholic Church came out and they said the same thing. Communion is not a magic trick. Uh, oh, by the way, another uh, thing that's used in magic is the patter. If you know the patter, Mm -hmm. which is where the magician talks in such a way as to kind of lull you into a bit of a meditative state so you don't see something. Well, that probably comes from Paternoster, right? The repetitive Lord's Prayer, the, the monster saying. So there's these interesting relationships. Well, what I want to look at today is the idea that actually Tillotson might have been right in his analysis that the magicians were kind of saying that Christianity is a type of magic trick. Mm -hmm that actually instead of being wrong, I think he's right. And that if we look at Christianity through this lens, we might see something interesting. And a lot of the reading that I'll be giving you is really from a, a group of thinkers who are outside of the church, who are looking at Christianity and finding out some very interesting things. So I'm gonna give this religionless reading, but if you want to know some of my other sources theologically, it would be like the later Bonhoeffer, Tillich, Altizer. These are the theological thinkers. But there's some, then the philosophical thinkers or people like Hegel, Lacan, and others. But anyway, we'll get into it. So let me just show you what a magic trick is. I need a quarter, by the way. 
Like a quarter, and a quarter. There, okay. May as well show you the rest. Thank you very much. Okay, it's not a magic quarter. There are basically three parts of a magic trick, traditional magic trick. There is the pledge, the turn, and the prestige, right? So the pledge is where an object is offered to the audience, right? An, uh, an object is held up, right? The turn is the disappearance of the object. And then the prestige is the return of the object. So here's a coin. This is kind of a close-up thing. You'd be even less impressed if you could actually see it, but I'll just give you a demonstration. You've got a coin. If you're sitting in a pub, this is a nice little trick to do. You have the coin, and you rub the coin like this. So you've got it in your hand, you rub the coin, and then you rub it on your shoulder, or if not shoulder. Elbow. 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 I don't know what that is. That bit of your arm. Right? That bit of your arm right there. Is there any doctors in the room? Something. Right. So you're rubbing the coin. I actually learned this in Tibet. I went and uh, studied under uh, a great uh, Zen master, Tibetan, uh, for 30 years, taught me how to do this great magic trick. Right, so you keep rubbing, 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 and eventually, it's not going to work. Hold on. Eventually, you rub it enough, and the coin disappears. Right? Oh, no clap yet. No clap yet. Oh, because that's only the second part of the magic trick. You have to have the prestige, right? Otherwise, people are starting to wonder where's the coin, and then they'll work it out. So you have to very quickly go. Okay, where's the coin? Well, if we lift up the bread, let's see if it worked. We have the coin, and then you clap. Yeah. I also do kids' parties, participants, uh, <laughs> I can do balloon animals, intestines, that kind of thing. Um, so, now, the point of this magic trick, the reason why I'm showing you is, okay, very basically, and some of you will work this out, especially because it's at a distance, is there's the place, the coin. The coin disappears, right? And then it reappears, but you're not getting the same coin back. That coin I placed in there earlier, right? The first coin, is in the back of my neck, right? Because I just swallowed hands. So what I do is I do a number of times where I hold it in my left hand, and as soon as your brain basically keeps looking at my left hand, I just put it in my right hand. Your eyes will continue to look, and then I put it in the back of my neck, and it's gone, right? So whenever a magician makes a dove disappear, you don't get the same dove back. That first dove is dead. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm sorry. Whenever the kids was done, you know, dogs have a hard time with the other right? Um, and uh, you know, this is a very basic structure of magic. I know a few tricks like that where you get back. Like, there's another trick very quickly where, uh, basically, I with a pack of cards deal you two cards. It's a nine of clubs and. Uh, no, sorry, a nine of diamonds and a six of hearts. Nine of diamonds, six of hearts. You put them into the pack, in the middle of the pack, and then I shake the pack crazily. All the cards go everywhere until I've got two cards in my hand, and then I flop them down into your cards. But they're not really your cards, you just think they are. I gave you the nine of diamonds and the six of hearts, but what I have on the top and bottom of the pack is a nine of hearts and a six of diamonds. So when I shake the pack, all the cards go out until I've got the two on either side, flip them over, all you're gonna remember is diamonds and hearts and nines and sixes. You think you've got it back. Okay, so there's the basic structure. So what is the pledge, 
of Christianity. Let's start there, the pledge of Christianity. What is the object that Christianity is going to make disappear? And I'm going to argue that it's called the sacred object. Now, what I want to do is uh, use somebody called Adam Phillips, who talked about how to be human is to live between who we are and who we would like to be, and between what we have and what we would like to have. So all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, experience the tension or the anxiety between who we are and who we'd like to be, say between what we have and what we'd like to have. And in our world, we are surrounded by the mess, especially in LA, of you can have what you want to have and you can be who you want to be, right? You can fulfill your dreams. You can fulfill your dreams, you work hard, you fulfill your dreams. Now, I want to say to you all, you should try to fulfill your dreams. Oh, if you remember nothing else from this talk, try to fulfill your dreams. We need a good laugh, right? <laughs> but you may turn around to me and say, no, I could fulfill my dreams. Well, even better, fulfill your dreams so that you can realize the object horror of your dreams. So that you can discover that when you fulfill your dreams, your dreams don't fulfill you, right? This is the, the weird thing about being human. It's called, Schopenhauer basically said, to be human is to live between, well, he called it like suffering and boredom. But you could say depression and melancholy, right? Either the depression of not getting what you want or the melancholy of getting what you want. Right? So thanks very much, appreciate it. It's <laughs> a really interesting and difficult dilemma. Um, and, and this is captured in the Oedipus complex. One basic way of reading the Oedipus complex is that, so you've got this kid who wants to sleep with his mom, perfectly normal. His dad gets in the way, he kills the father, uh, sleeps with his mother, doesn't know it's his mother. Uh, he thinks this is going to be a blessing, but it's a curse, it's a disaster. It all goes wrong, right? But one way of understanding this in a very basic level is to see these as symbolic positions. The mother is the symbol of the return to wholeness, getting the thing that will make you whole and complete, the womb, right? The father is the symbol of what gets in the way of you getting wholeness, completeness, the one, right? And then Oedipus breaks the prohibition, gets what he wants, and it's an absolute disaster. Right, so that captures this really weird dynamic. And in psychoanalytic understanding, the superego is in a sense this voice that is always telling you that you have to do X, Y, or Z in order to be happy, in order to get rid of your guilt, in order. So it's always, it's just it's the inner self-help book that's always telling you that you just have to get to this point and then everything will be good, right? And we think we have to obey this superego injunction, this movement to kind of find a way out of the anxiety of this spiritual in-between that we live in. Now, the reason why I start with that is because, interestingly, the, the, the Bible starts with a type of a Jewish Oedipal story, right? Adam and Eve walking around a garden. There's a prohibition. Behind the prohibition, there's an apple, a piece of fruit, right? What do they do? They're dissatisfied. They go, there's a voice, a serpent, that says, you eat of that fruit and you will be like God which means you, you will be whole and complete. You will lack the lack, right? So they have this desire for the piece of fruit. They break through the prohibition. They think it's going to be wonderful, and it's a disaster. It's a curse, right? So it's a very similar structure. And instead of a superego, you've got the serpent. What is the serpent? The serpent is the inner outer voice that is telling you that if only you get that thing, then everything's going to be wonderful, right? And they break through the prohibition. 
So, and now we probably won't get to this, but the technology of theology is grace, which is to, to break that where you don't have to make it. Anyway, so they've got, you've got this basic structure at the beginning of the text. It's a very, very insightful structure that fits very neatly with some of the psychoanalytic notions of subjectivity. Now, this, the psychoanalytic myth, right, is basically that there are two births. There is the physical birth, where you're physically born, and then there is the birth of your subjectivity, which is called the mirror phase, around three months to 18 months, right? And the birth of subjectivity is when you start to experience yourself as a self. You start to be able to acknowledge yourself as separate from everything else around you, and ultimately separate from yourself. Now, this is a weird experience. This is a bizarre experience. Um, if it doesn't happen, if you, like basically, if you don't separate from your mother, right? If you don't separate, you, something awful takes place and you become Irish, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why, by the way, they say Jesus was Irish, right? Because he lived, lived with his mum until he was 30. <laughs> she thought he was God. Um, so, <laughs> but actually, the psychoanalytic name for it is psychosis. Right? Uh, psychosis is when the separation hasn't happened. Uh, in, a, in a, in a, in a uh, solid enough way. So obviously the psychotic is the person who experiences a very fragile ego. It either fragments or it blurs. There's no inside, outside, out-of-body experiences, uh, inundated with voices, uh, the gaze, all of the psychic kind of psych psych psychotic experiences is kind of, you can say, a failure of the separation. So separation, is this important moment, but it's traumatic. But here's the trick, and if you understand this, you'll actually understand the core of my work and what I think is interesting about Christianity, is we come out of this experience of separation with a sense of loss. We've lost something, we've lost wholeness, oneness, we've lost this, this primordial unity with the other, the mother other. Right? But the secret is no, you haven't lost that. You are the loss. You are created in and through the loss. So it's not like you existed and then you lost some, some wholeness. It's subjectivity is the experience of separation. To be a subject is to experience yourself as separate from others. And I say we can't get into the more interesting bit, but the more interesting bit is that you're separated from yourself. Um, I might touch on it a little bit actually, but we start to, um, uh, we have this weird um, experience where our family tell us things like, you're strong, you're fast, you're smart, you know, you're whatever, right, to your kids. They're not, have you ever met a kid? They're not fast. They're not strong. I could beat a kid hands down. This four year old, let's go, let's have an arm wrestle. I'll beat him every single time. He looks like a tough one, but still, I'll beat him, right? You're not a princess. Princesses don't wear four dollar target dresses. But, but you know, we start to identify with what's called an ego ideal. We identify with an outside that is, you know, you're strong, whatever. And, you know, we kind of identify that with that. But then, of course, if we also experience the anxiety of living between ourselves and that. I mean, Instagram's a perfect example of this. Is you're insecure about your life, but on Instagram, you can project out your ego ideal mm -hmm. and say, oh, that's who I am. 
and then the likes kind of anchor that back into you. So we all experience this kind of anxiety. But the point being that there is an original loss, original sense of separation when you enter into the world. And the technical term for this loss or for what the residue that this creates is called the lost object. The lost object is the idea that there's something out there that will get us back to the one, right? An original blessing, an original something that will, that will answer all questions, that will fix it. Wholeness, completeness, right? So we, we are marked by a sense of loss and by a belief that there is something prior to the loss that we can get back. Mm. But within the kind of radical tradition, it's like, no, this is a type of fantasy that's actually what, that's what creates all of the problems and all, so much of the violence to ourselves and to our world and to each other is through this frenetic desire for the lost object. In scholastic theology, there's a name for it as well, which I quite like, original sin, which basically means original separation. Not a separation that comes after, but a separation that marks our very subjectivity. Mm -hmm. um, and in, you know, uh, in existentialism, it's called alienation. So there's various names for this fundamental experience of subjectivity that creates a sense of loss. Now, this causes so many problems in our lives. There's kind of three things that happen, right? In relation to this lost object, we can often pretend that we've got it. We seek it, we, we kind of like try to, like with Instagram or Facebook, we create a Photoshop version of ourselves. All the books that we pretend are reading, not the ones that we really do, you know? All the, the photos that make us look good. We create a type of kind of image of ourselves. And we can often fall for this image and think that we are. There's a great story in the Bible about this actually, about Jesus, and he's learning golf. And the story is that he's, he's got all of the equipment, Mark 17. He's got all the he's out there with the disciples, but he doesn't know what he's doing. He's terrible, right? He's using uh, an iron, he should be using a wood. He's not teeing up correctly. One of the disciples says to him, listen, you're going to mess that shot up. He says, back off, and Jesus, right? <laughs> but sure enough, Jesus takes the swing, slices the ball, goes into a lake. I said, Jesus, right? So he goes over, over to the water, picks up the ball, brings it back, tees it up, slices it a second time, goes into the same lake, and he goes, he walks on the water, goes to pick up the ball. Now at the same time, there's this guy called Seamus walking past, right? And, uh, and Seamus is like, uh, who's that guy think he is? Jesus Christ. And the disciples say, no, that is Jesus Christ. He thinks he's Roy McElroy. <laughs> we all have these ideals, right? And we, we, think we are, that we pretend we are, we try to cover over the anxiety, cover over the nothingness. And we, we play these kinds of games. Now here, by the way, here's a, here's a question for us, a theological question, is like, what makes the object that we can't get so desirable, right? So in, in what's, what makes the piece of fruit behind the prohibition so desirable? And of course, the answer is simple, and Paul got this, and Freud actually as well, is that is it, it's the prohibition itself. The prohibition, creates this excessive desire for what's behind the prohibition, right? So as soon as there's something you can't grasp, it's more likely that that starts to take on big significance. Like if you've got a child with a toy, it's a normal toy, but when you remove the toy from them, the toy becomes a sacred object. It starts to become the one thing they want. 
a kid who wants a dog, a puppy for Christmas. I want a puppy for Christmas. They just want a puppy for Christmas, but the more you say no, the more that I really need a puppy for Christmas. I really want a puppy. Give me a puppy. Give me a puppy. Until all he wants a puppy. If you give me a puppy, I will never want any presents ever again. So I'm right? And then eventually you relent and you buy them a puppy. Two weeks later, they're not walking the puppy, they're not feeding the puppy. You have to join in the bath. So, um, I don't know, traumatic. <laughs> it's the very prohibition that generates the success of desire. This is, by the way, what the term making love means. Right? People think making love is about two people having sex. No. The two, a couple doesn't make love. You have to have a third person to make love. And that's the chaperone. Right? The role of the chaperone is to make love. In other words, you think today uh, that the, the chaperone is the one who's stopping you from doing anything on sword, right? No. The role of the chaperone is to get you to start fantasizing about what you could do if they weren't there. <laughs> so they're making love. Right? If, without a clue, that's why I was interested. When I moved to America, I discovered in a very permissive society, it made sense that you guys created a technology to help young people have sex, right? I thought, of course, it had to be Americans because of this. And it's a very simple technology. It's like, it's very, it's like very, very simple. And basically, it's, a, it's, it's this ring that you put on your finger that is called a purity ring. And what it does is it suddenly makes sex really desirable, right? So you prohibit, the, the ring says, I will not sleep with someone before I'm married. Of course, what's that going to do? It's going to make you really want to. So statistically, people who wear purity rings are more likely to have sex than those who don't. Because <laughs> that's what that's from the dating sites and stuff, is that you remove the prohibition and you just get to work. You talk to someone and you have to get to work. You need prohibitions to generate the success. It's like my talks. People say to me, Pete, you'd be a good speaker if you only slow down, take a breath, don't go off on tangents, actually make a point. But no, if I did those things, you'd have a boring talk. At least now you have a talk where you think that it could be good if it <laughs> There's a, great, there's a great story from Ireland about this, about this Texan, right? This, uh, I was actually a New Yorker. He's like a high-priced lawyer, really high but kind of lawyer where you go, uh, how much do you cost for three questions? $1,000. Seriously? Yes. What's your third question? Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> lawyer is shooting ducks in Ireland, just out hunting, taking his time, and uh, he hits this duck, duck falls into a field, right? And he's climbing over the fence to get the duck. And as he's climbing over the fence, this other guy in a tractor, this other guy Seamus, right, he's driving past. <laughs> this other guy Seamus says, I said, oh, what would you be doing there? And the lawyer is just stressed out, he doesn't want to talk to anybody, he's really rude, really rude. He says, mind your own business, I might hunting ducks. Duck fell in that field, I'm going to get him. Well, this puts Seamus' back up a little bit, and he says, well, listen, that there would be my field, so that would be trespassing. Well, the lawyer turns around to him and says, you do not want to toy with me. He says, I'm a lawyer, high-priced lawyer from New York. He says, I could bankrupt you. I could destroy you. Seamus says, oh, he says, is that, all right? is that right? He says, is that right? Which is, I don't know what they teach you in those, you know, those high-priced private colleges in America. But he says, right here, we have a legal rule to settle these disputes. This lawyer says, what is that? He says, well, that's called the three-kick rule. He says, what's the three-kick rule? He says, simple. He says, he says, I kick you three times, you kick me three times, I kick you three times, back and forth. First person to give up, the other person wins. <laughs> well, this lawyer looks at this guy in the 60s, lawyers, you know, pretty fit guys. This will be, be a laugh, absolutely. So the lawyer goes up to 
Seamus gets off his tractor, limbers up, and then kicks him in the side. Really good kick, like really catches him, takes his breath away. And then kicks him right between the legs, puts him on the ground. Oh, oh. And he's, he's almost going to give up. He's, he's, he's determined this boy, determined. And then kick in the stomach. Right. Laura gets up, catches his breath, and goes up to Seamus. And Seamus says, No, he says, It's all right. He says, You win. You can have the duck. Not as dumb as we know. You know, the prohibition generates the success fighting desire for this. As soon as you take away the prohibition, it's like, This is just a duck, right? It's all this, all this, all this. And you can have the duck. I'm doing all this for a duck. Right? You know, that's the crazy thing about all the things that we're doing, all of our crazy, frenetic life. Like, when you get it, it's like, I did this for just a house with an extra room. You know, whatever. I mean, having money's great. It's like, if you get a bigger star, I was, I had support for three years from a private foundation. That's why I came to America. And they lent me this beautiful house. It's a very generous family. And it was lovely. And a better shower and really comfortable mattress. And the air conditioning was lovely. It was like the right temperature all the time. It was lovely. But it didn't fix the existential angst in my life, right? I just had a nicer shower, like a two-headed shower. So, I'm, I'm not saying there's not good things about having a two-headed shower, but it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't take away, it doesn't give you the lost object. So you have this structure. Um, and then say, one thing we do is we either pretend to ourselves we have it. We um, get, like, look at you right now, you're all like dressed as if you're normal, like you're acting as if you're normal. You're all, like, sitting there as if like, hey, well, you're not normal, I've been through your trash. <laughs> the anxieties that we have, the things that we encounter in our sleep. Our sleep is when we're awake. That's the interesting thing is we're awake to all the anxieties. If it gets too much, then you have to wake up to dream. So this is our dream life where we're pretending that everything's okay. Now, this is actually why I brought this. Because this is a, this is a propaganda poster from uh, 1948, Soviet Russia. Uh, done by a guy called Pyotr Gulub. And what's interesting, it's very hard to get. Um, it was made, it was, you can see, it was all painted and finished. It was about to be mass produced. And then at the very last moment, the very last moment, the censorship committee freaked out. They said, this is an abomination. This poster needs to be destroyed, right? Every remnant of it gone. And, and the future goal was arrested and probably brought to the Gulags. So you kind of go, well, what was it about this Soviet poster that got uh, Piotrogula arrested? What was it that had to be destroyed? What was it about this poster that was so grossly offensive? And you look at it, and the first time you look at it, it just seems like a very standard kind of propaganda poster. But then you look more closely, and you notice Stalin's hands, and you notice that he only has three fingers. And his hands actually look really kind of monstrous. It's a weird detail that basically you never notice until someone points it out and it's like really obvious, right? It's this little detail. And you kind of go, well, what was going on? Why did Piotr Gullet do this? Now, someone told me once, so hands are hard to draw. I go like, yeah, we can do all of that. And to be honest, it's not like it's at five o'clock and you've been a bit rubbish with the old hands and think, well, Stalin's going to be forgiving, it'll be fine, right? It's not the kind of situation. Um, you have to not only be bad at drawing hands, you have to be bad at knowing he was bad at drawing hands. So that doesn't seem to make sense. And then you go, well, does it have some sort of symbolic protest meaning? But no, there's no, there's no like, uh, meaning behind this type of grotesque hands that, that Piotrovs would be kind of like referencing. This brings us into the weird third space 
So one is it's a mistake, two is it's deliberate, three is a deliberate mistake, which is called the Freudian slip. The Freudian slip is a mistake that tells the truth. It's a mistake that you don't even know you're making, that you think is just an anomaly, but that actually tells me more about you than anything you would say or do, right? You tell me more truth with a tapping of your foot than with what you say with your words. And this is the, so, because I, I went to get this framed at a Framers in LA once, a similar version of this. And he said to me, he said, oh, you know, you know what has three fingers? He said, what is it? He said, cartoon characters. Said, oh yeah, that's interesting, cartoon characters. There's something about this that's kind of like the monstrous truth, that there is something cartoonish and grotesque behind the, the propaganda, who's behind what's being shown. So this is not the truth. This is the truth. This is what a detective is all about, right? I mean, Columbo's my favorite TV show of all time. We love it in Europe. We're obsessed with Columbo. I've watched them all multiple times. And the beautiful thing about Columbo, of course, is he walks into a situation in which the, the criminal has created a scene the way they want it to be read. And everybody sees what is presented and what's obvious. What does the detective do? What does Columbo do? Well, he notices the one anomaly. The anomaly is what speaks the truth, right? That's why an analyst doesn't really care about what you're saying. What they care about is when you talk about your mom instead of your sister, or you make a mistake or you hesitate. Then they become interested, because the idea is the anomaly is the truth. The anomaly is the royal road to finding out what's really going on. We are propaganda posters, but in our lives, our bad back, our, our survivor, our crying for no reason, our fear of going outside or inside or being alone or being with others, that speaks the truth. The very element, the very thing that we think, oh, that's not me, is more you than you know. The bit, it's not a cancer that you can cut out of your body. That's a problem you can remove. It's a symptom that speaks the truth. That's what a symptom is, by the way. A symptom is a thing that speaks the truth that you cannot speak. You know, your bad back might be because you can't talk about how your relationship is bad. You're grinding your teeth because you want to shout at somebody, but you can't. You don't know even know you want to shout at them, so it comes up and grinding your teeth. Then you go to a doctor to try and fix it. You go like, it's maybe telling you something. Now, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as uh, Freud said, you know. Um, sometimes it's a penis, right? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a symbol. But if, if you can't find your, mom, your keys every time you're going to see your mum, Maybe you don't want to see your bum, right? <laughs> look at, don't look at what you think. People think, that's what I always find funny, is that people talk about what do you believe, as if we know what we believe. Our consciousness is basically a mechanism designed to protect us against knowing what we believe, right? It's like, yeah, it takes years to, to figure out what you believe, and you have to do journaling and watch it. That's why people do reality TV, because they don't know they're idiots. They think they're really cool. It's funny whenever they... <laughs> Reality TV wouldn't work if you're not incredibly good at self-deception, right? Because you would never do it. Um, weirdly, like people say, "Oh, I don't believe in ghosts." Yeah, not until it's nighttime and you hear like, a creep outside. <laughs> then you get all Harry Potter with the duvet over your head. Is it invisible? Right? You do believe in ghosts. You just don't know it. We have lots of beliefs. Weird beliefs. We just don't know we have. Right? They come out in the weirdest of things because we repress things. That doesn't mean they go away. And it's an interesting structure. So there's three things people think about belief. One is we know what we believe. I get that. People, what do you believe? I believe I don't know what I believe. <laughs> Secondly, people think that if you believe something, it means you think it's true. No, I believe the weirdest of things. As I say, you might believe that a duvet cover protects you from a night attack. 
you don't think that's real, but you believe it. Uh, you, and three, sometimes people say, and you want to communicate your beliefs? No. Some of your beliefs are so terrible, the only person you'll tell them to is your closest friends, you know, because they're, they're awful. Some of our beliefs are crazy. Um, we are very good at self-deception. And that's why, again, you have to look at your dreams and your actions. I went for coffee with my housemate a couple of years ago. He says, let's go to this coffee shop. I look at it, it's like, it's like an hour away. So why does he want to go to a coffee shop that's an hour away? But I just drive there. Drive there, get out, buy the coffee, buy the food. As soon as I buy the food, what happens? I'm like, I wonder if there's another coffee shop that's the same name as close, right? I look it up, yeah, there's one five minutes away from the house. Why did I? find a coffee shop an hour away, drive there, and the only point when I realized was whenever I bought food and bought coffee and, you know, was basically pot committed. And I'm going like, oh, do I not want to see him? And I, and I didn't, it's not what I was thinking in my head, but my actions told me something. And as I asked myself, I realized, oh yeah, there's some unresolved conflict. And weirdly, the truth is not in what I think, but is in the symptom. This is kind of like what a detective. So whenever Columbo comes on the scene, it's like, oh, the house burnt down. Okay, the house burnt down. Oh, okay, we're okay time wise, aren't we? Locked the doors. <laughs> Only three more hours. <laughs> you go in, you go, oh, the house burnt down. The guy's a smoker, smokes plenty a day. Right? Obviously, look, there are some cigarettes in the office. Uh, one of them must have fallen off the desk, set fire to the house, and he died. Columbo comes in. I love Columbus amazing. He is the um, Slavoj Zizek talks about him as the original um, Thomas Aquinas. You know, he's, he's, he already knows that God exists. He just has to show the the reason. You know, Columbo already knows who the criminal is, right? He's weird. You ever watch it? He's like this mystic. He already knows who did it, basically, and then just has to prove it. But he comes on the scene. He picks up one cigarette, one cigarette, and he looks at him. Oh, that's weird. Well, that's weird. Well, you know, whenever you smoke a cigarette, you suck the tobacco through the filter, creates a little bit of brown on the filter. This is weird. This, this cigarette's been smoked. There's, there's, no, there's no tar on the filter. So that's weird. It looks like almost like somebody who's not a smoker came in that some cigarettes left them to burn so it looked like they were smoking. And they went, oh, wait, this is interesting as well. You notice that um, this isn't scrunched up. All of these other cigarettes around the house are scrunched up. These, are, these aren't scrunched up. So it looks like someone else was in, again, didn't scrunch the cigarette. And then he knows, right? The trick for us is, is don't get caught up in what's manifest. Look for the symptom. Look for the little anomaly. And what the anomaly does is the more we think that everything's fine and good as a society as well, the more there will be eruptions of symptoms. The eruption of the symptom is not a problem that we can cut out. It's a symptom that tells the truth. That's why, to be honest, as another aside, but uh, you know, doing kind of what do you call it in churches, but like uh, we do a social action, right? We sometimes think that we're doing social action because we are good news to the people we're going to. Say people in prison, I am good news to these people who are in prison. I'm visiting them. No, they're good news to us because. That is the symptom of a, of, a, of a society that is in crisis. And it's only Amen. when you listen to the symptom that you realize the crisis that's within the society. It's not like that the homeless population is, if only we did enough, we can get rid of it. No, the homeless population is not a problem. It's the solution to a problem. There's a problem within the society, and our solution is to, to move this group of people and police them and regulate them and all of that. 
maybe it's a problem with mental health provision, right? you know, can send people, young people to war, whatever it is, you go to the, the, the people who are oppressed because they are the call of God to repent. You know, that's, that's you go there in order to be saved. Mm. That's, that's the idea, is you go there to find God and the other to, to be transformed. So it's a symptom, but and that's the same thing about listen to your symptoms. Your symptom, and the can cleverly play with the notion of uh, an old-fashioned way of saying symptom, santom, santom, S-I-N-T-H-O-M-E, santom. He played with this, because what does santom mean in French? Well, it also sounds like holy man, right? Your symptom is a prophet. Your symptom is a speaker of the truth that you cannot speak. The symptom in yourself, your symptom in your society, is not something to, to ignore, to repress, to get rid of. It's, you have to listen to it. And as you listen to it, it unwinds something. But this is the first, um, don't worry, we'll get to the end. But the first thing about the, the lost object is when we pretend to ourselves that everything's fine, and we think everything's good, we are the right people, the more you give yourself to the idea of wholeness and completeness, and LA's full of it, everyone is a non-castrated other. It's called a non-castrated person, a person who is whole and complete. As soon as we give ourselves to it, the more we hide our anxieties and they come out in objective ways. They come out in our body. They come out in, in all sorts of anxieties and sufferings, and anxiety is rife today. The second thing we do, by the way, with this lost object is not only do we sometimes pretend to ourselves that we've got it, and then we have symptoms that tell the truth, we also fantasize that the other person has it and we don't. So this is the most human evil, not fans, but real evil, comes from postulating, fantasizing that the other has the lost object that you don't have. So most Hollywood movies, you have, of course, the bad guy. What is the bad guy? The person who has the lost object. The, the Joker literally has a smile etched on his face. Excessive pleasure. They're rich, they're powerful, they're good looking. They're robbing a bank. Why are they robbing a bank? They've got so much money anyway. You know how much money you need to rob a bank. They've got all of this stuff. What do they want? It's like they've already got it. And it's not, it's the bad, it's the goodies. Like Batman, who's the traumatized one? He's unhappy, whatever. And if, or if you break up with someone, you fantasize about them being out there having a great time, partying, having fun, while you're in the house crying with a tinfoil hat on your head, collecting your thoughts, <laughs> right? You know, you have this weird fantasy that the other has what we do, what we don't. And you see this structurally as well. The immigrant, they, they are going to take our money or they're going to take our jobs. Two mutually exclusive terms. One is they work harder for less, and two is they're lazy. It doesn't matter. They've got the thing that we don't have. Right? So there's this fantasy that the other has it, or the third is we pretend we have it so that we can get the substitute pleasure of people thinking that we've got the pleasure. Um, that's like, you know, Christmas, a lot of people write these cards about their kids, you know, and send them out. Little Johnny is great, you know, A students, is uh, doing really well, is going to be president or whatever. Little Johnny's got a heroin addiction, lives in a car in the back, right? It doesn't matter. <laughs> you want to present a certain thing because you at least get the pleasure of people kind of admiring you and looking at you and going, I wish you had it. That's what jealousy and envy is, by the way. Jealousy is the idea that the person has something that you want that will make you whole and complete. And envy is when you don't want the thing that they have, but you want the type of relationship they have. So jealousy is, oh, I want that person's partner. I'm, I want her. If I can leave you with her, everything would be wonderful. Jealousy is you don't want to be with the partner, but you want the relationship that they have. Um, so we get caught up in all of these things. Here's the issue, here's the crazy thing. Um, is, um, 
you can't have the laws of object for a very simple structural reason, is there's two elements of desire. This will all get theological in a second. There's two elements of desire. There's the object of desire, and there's the object cause of desire. We don't notice this. We have to unpack, we have to do an x-ray of desire. We have to crack it open like the atom. The object of desire is what you want, and the object cause of desire is kind of what gets in the way of what you want. So I have a friend who's really into houses. She's always looking at houses. She's always looking on the internet, looking at magazines, always looking at different prices and all of that. Now, the object of desire is the house, but the object cause of desire is not having the house, is looking at all the magazines, going over the internet and doing all of that. <clears throat> Here's the problem. The problem is when you get rid of the object cause of desire, you actually get the house. You get what you desire, but you no longer desire it. Because actually what was making you desire the house was not getting it. Was like what you're really getting pleasure from is all the searching, right? So when you fantasize, hopefully I got married or whatever it is, then everything would be great. Then you can get the object of your desire and you can lose the object cause of your desire. Freud called this the pleasure principle and the reality principle. The pleasure principle is simple. I want to climb trees, I want to eat chocolate, I want to win all the games that I play. Right? <laughs> reality principle is your body won't let you climb trees, you're too young, your body won't let you, your parents won't let you eat chocolate all day, and your friends won't let you win games all the time, right? That's reality principle, it's what gets in the way of the pleasure principle. But the interesting, one of, the, one of Freud's very early insights was that the pleasure, reality principle doesn't get in the way of pleasure principle, it's what generates the pleasure principle. If you got rid of the reality principle, you wouldn't be left with pleasure, you'd be left with nothing. Because it's, it's, the, it's the challenge and the inability to get the thing that generates the desire for it. So if you could just climb Everest like that, without having to work and do all the effort, you're actually not getting where the real enjoyment is. And in our society, we keep postulating that the, that the destination is where the pleasure is, not the struggle. But weirdly, the struggle, the object cause of desire, is what generates this pleasure. So they're, they're intertwined. And there are religions of hedonism, which are religions that say, we can give you pleasure principle without reality principle. And there are religions of nihilism, which are saying basically that you embrace the, la the, the loss of desire uh, and, and get out of it. I think like, uh, Kierkegaard and others talk about Christianity as a religion of the absurd, which is weirdly a religion. Uh, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay, so, so we, I know I've thrown a lot at you, but so far it's very simple. I'm just saying, what is the pledge of Christianity? Christianity begins, the Bible begins with a very simple, very insightful, um, psychoanalytic notion of our obsessive attachment to a sacred object that will make us whole and complete. In the grasping of it, it's a disaster. Um, Sin, from a theological perspective, can simply be any act that is, that is connected to the loss, any act that is connected to trying to fill the lack, right? And, and that, that, the activity of trying to fill the lack creates such weird behavior, such weird behavior. Think about it in terms of this. We are terrible utilitarians, right? Uh, it's animals who are good utilitarians. Animals have read you know, uh, read Bentham, uh, and they know all about the pleasure principle, but ple pleasure pain calculation. Because if you look at it, a dog, you know, it wants to go one way, and you pull the leash, and eventually the dog just goes the other way, right? Human beings are weirdly terrible at being utilitarians. I am around, and the rest of these out there. 
you know, she said, like, by our contemporary capitalist structure, said, at least one thing we can all agree on is that at least it, it appeals to our selfishness, right? And what we need to do is we need to utilize that for the good of everybody, but it appeals to something selfish in us. Here's the funny thing, the, the, the psychoanalytic ideas. You know, there's something profoundly selfless about a lot of people caught up, caught up deeply within the capitalist system, but not selfish in a good way. We often think of selfish and selfless as one's good, one's bad, but a perverse type of selflessness, the selflessness of a zombie that will attack you even though you're shooting it. It will still continue to attack you. It's called death drive, right? It's, it's this weird thing where you do not pay heed to yourself and your own interests. You actually destroy yourself. It's a very bizarre anomaly. This very why do you keep going out with people who are bad for you? Why do you keep self-sabotaging? Why do you keep kind of you know not getting the job you want because you say the wrong thing at the wrong moment? That's a weird thing. But the notion is this: is that because like, because I know some people who are very successful, right? And you go, hold on a second. Once you've made 10 million, just relax, or 100 million, or 300 million. But some, some people I know can't stop. And it's not because they want more money for more happiness. They're going like, you know, my doctor's telling me it's killing me, right? It's killing me, and, and, and I've got a terrible relationship with my family and my friends, and I've, I've really screwed over a lot of people to do this. I don't even like it. But if, if they were selfish, you'd stop and you'd enjoy it, right? One of the best footballers in the world is a guy called George Best from Northern Ireland. And he once said, I spent, uh, most of my money on drugs and alcohol and women. And I said, and I squandered the rest. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, he was out there just having a good time. But weirdly, what is it when we so, when we so attach to something that we're no longer getting anything selfish out of it? We we will destroy ourselves to get that reputation, to get that thing. That's called death drive. This is this weird obsessive attachment with the thing that will fulfill us and make us whole and complete, which actually destroys us. So I want to say Christianity starts with that. Oh, by the way, the whole Garden of Eden looks like a magician's theater. You've got Adam and Eve, that's where the audience is. You've got the curtain, well, you've got a prohibition, and behind the prohibition, you've got the sacred object, right? So what is the turn? I'm going to do these ones much quicker. The turn of Christianity is the crucifixion. Right? What is the crucifixion? What is the Temple of Jerusalem? Well, in a sense, it's a recreation of the Garden of Eden. You've got the Court of Gentiles, where you come in, you hang out. You've got the curtain. And then behind the curtain, you've got the Sacred of Sacreds. You've got where God dwells, right? It's like a, just like a magician's thing. You know, the magician loves their, their curtain, right? They put the sacred object, the pledge, behind the curtain. And you have this thing within Christianity, which is incredible. You, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, ter the temple curtain rips, just like a magician's trick, right? And, wow, the crucifixion moment, the nihilistic core of Christianity, there's nothing there. It's just a room. There's no God gas. It's not all the coin, my friend Jay says, not all the coins that you lose in the washing machine, or down, down the washing machine, or down at the sofa, all like there. It's just a room. There was actually a Roman general went into the Holy of Holies, and it's written down that he says, there's nothing in there. Right? I, I want to argue that this is the second part of Christianity. It's the realization that there is nothing out there that will make you whole and complete. It is the atheistic event of Christianity, which is the destruction 
of this notion. And by the way, this if you call religion, and I think religion in its general sense is the promise of wholeness and satisfaction. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I moved to LA is because it's the most religious place in the world. Everyone's <laughs> promising wholeness and completeness everywhere you turn. Right? <laughs> Every corner, right? There is someone saying, if you're rich enough, you're famous enough, you look the right way. You know, it's a tyranny of happiness. It's incredible. It's incredible. Like the, the, you have to, you have to always try and be happy, and, and, it, and it gets inside you. It gets inside you. This is. Um, She's like a Slovenian philosopher talks about it. He says, take a traditional family, right? Traditional family, kid says, I don't want to see granny. But like, you have to see granny. I don't want to see granny. Get in the car, you're going to see granny, right? Get, in the, get your coat, get in the car. And then you've got like a modern family. Modern family is very different. Modern family says, listen, Johnny, you have to see granny. And Johnny says, I don't want to see granny. You're like, come on, you have to see granny. You want to make her happy. I know you do. I know deep down. You know, you really want to see granny. I don't know. She's wrinkly. you got cold hands. I don't want to see her. Come on, you really want to. Right? She says, that's even worse. Right? First of all, it's it's a lie. Because the little Johnny says, no, I just want to play the Xbox. They'll go back to version one. Just get your coat, get in the car. Right? But secondly, the problem is little Johnny doesn't have to just go and see granny. He has to like it. Right? There's no space of protest within him, right? He's got no place to protest. You're actually subjectifying the voice into him. So now that he is his own enemy, right? Um, you, whereas the first example, at least little Johnny says, when well, I'm old enough, I don't have to do this. There's a very interesting reading of the first uh, commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He goes like, let's be literalist about it. Yeah, you shall have no other gods in front of me. Of course you can have gods, like, quietly. Be discreet. Just don't do it where I can see it. <laughs> this is the clever thing about Christianity. Is, is, um, is it like as we get, you have a father or mother who says, listen, you know, no drinking, right? But quietly they're like, you can have a few drinks at your friend's house, right? There's, there's this room for, you know, rebellion within the structure. So within LA, it's funny because you can, you can pretend, oh, it's all about happiness, you can be a party, you can, you can ask, it's all about happiness, but you can go to the bathroom and go, oh my goodness, and enjoy your sadness for a bit. Oh. But, then, but then once it gets inside you, there's nowhere to escape. Even your own body's telling you, yeah, it's have a good time. It's awful. But you can go to the bathroom and everyone's doing drugs. Like there's no escape from the tyranny of happiness, right? It's, um, it's great to live in a society where you're free to pursue what will make you happy, but we also need spaces where you're freed from the pursuit of what will make you happy. This is part of the rule of church for me, is it? It's to give you the space where you're also freed from the pursuit, mm. freed from this frenetic drive for more and more and more, freed from death drive, which is called forgiveness of sin. Mm. Right? What's forgiveness of sin, right? What is sin? Debt, right? What is a debt? A debt is a nothingness. If you, if you have a debt, it's a nothingness. There's two types of nothingness, right? There's nothingness that is nothing. And there's nothing that's something. <laughs> so debt, <laughs> like, there's, there's not talking in a relationship and there's not talking. Two different types of nothingness, right? We know it all the time. There's, there's something you're not talking about. Like in Northern Ireland, we don't talk about our Buddhist neighbours. Yeah, because we don't really know there are any. But if you're not talking about your Catholic neighbours or your Protestant neighbours, that not talking is saying something, right? <laughs> so debt is a nothingness that is something. It is a nothingness that actually ties you to jobs, you despise institutions, you hate, gives you a heart attack, all of that. Debt is a nothingness that is something. To pay a debt means to fill it. If I pay a debt, I take the nothingness and I fill it with money, right? If I forgive a debt, I don't fill it. I render the nothingness nothing, right? You basically, to forgive a debt is to say that nothingness that is something is now a nothingness that is nothing. 
right? It's to, it's to bring a lack into the lack. It's not to fill the lack, it's actually to redouble the lack. So the turn of Christianity, and this is, this is what's different from New Age mysticism, because New Age mysticism, the turn is to give you the thing, right? To promise to give you the, the lost object. Christianity, I want to argue, does not give you the lost object. You experience the loss of the lost object. That's, that's the beginning, the loss of the lost object. Christianity gives you the loss of the loss of the lost object, right? That's clever. Right? <laughs> the loss of the loss of the lost object, which means uh, it's like bankruptcy. It's like the debt's forgiven. It's like it's the, it's, it robs the nothingness of its sting. The lack is no longer something you frantically have to fill. You find that the lack is something that is not dangerous or bad. Now, this is only the second part of the magic trick, so you can't clap at this point. There has to be a third point. But here's one thing I'll say, and this is very important because it comes to the liturgy part. Right? Within the conservative church, the, the uh, way of relating to the liturgical technology is repressed out. Right? So that's kind of, well, it, it, well, it's well known, but we don't know. So for a conservative, their engagement with the liturgy is repressed out. Now, what I mean by that is that for a conservative person, you say you believe what's being said. You believe in the liturgy. You believe in what's being said from the front, what's being sung, all of that. But you don't really believe, right? That's not the point. There's a good story from Northern Ireland. Like, we have these stories called Paddy Irishman, Paddy Irishman, Paddy Scotsman. Do you have them in America? I don't know if you do. But it is, and the Irishman's always the thought of the joke, even in Ireland. You'd think we'd cheer them, but we don't. And anyway, these three, Englishman, Irishman, Scottishman, are all training to be in the SAS. And they've got through all of the tests, and they're at the last test. And they're at this, this uh, kind of this uh, cabin in the woods. And they're all outside, and they're called in one by one. English guy first. Come in. Walks in, there's a colonel. Colonel with a with a, a gun sitting on the desk. He says, Right, you've passed all the tests, but we've got to see what you will do for Queen and Country. So you want to pick up that gun, you're gonna go into that room, and you're gonna shoot whoever's in there. No questions asked. English guy, no problems. Picks up the gun, walks in, he's in there for five minutes, he comes out sweating, throws the gun down, and says, You got my brother in there. My brother's in there. I'm not gonna shoot my brother. Walks out. Then the Scottish guy come in, same thing, gun on the table, want you to go in there, shoot the Evers in there, want to see what you'll do for Queen and Country. Picks up the gun, goes in. He's in there for about five, ten minutes, and you hear a click. And then he comes out, he's sweating, he puts the gun down, he says, You have a brother in there. He said, You know, deep down, deep down, and you, you, you wouldn't put real bullets in the gun. I pulled the trigger, there you go. And then it's the Irish guy. The Irish guy comes in. Revolver's put on the table, go in there, kill whoever's in there. Picks up the revolver, he goes in, he's in there for like five minutes. And then you hear like a, like a bit of a scuffle and you smash glass and then a scream and he comes out sweating and says, some idiot put blanks in the gun, I had to use a chair. Right? <laughs> 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 There's a reason. Um, people think that the fundamentalist is the is the Irish guy, right? They really believe. They believe to the point that they will do crazy things. No. The secret of within fundamentalism is that you're actually the, uh, sorry, you're actually the Scottish guy, right? You're not the Irish guy, you're the Scottish guy. Why? You're the Scottish guy because you have to, in a sense, believe and say all the right things, but you're not supposed to believe it. 
you'll never get too far in the fundamentalist tradition if you really, really believe it, because they're a nightmare. If they're in the prayer meeting, they want to actually pray only. You, you give lip service to it. Like, I, I do a thing called the Omega course, which is like the Alpha course, but it's 12 weeks exiting Christianity. It's, um, but we do, it's basically the same as the Alpha course, but we, we look at things from a variety of perspectives, and it's about the conversation. Anyway, one of the ones was about the resurrection. And during this Omega night, uh, one person said, I don't think I believe in a literal resurrection. And, and uh, they talked about that, she talked about that. Then somebody else said, oh, I really do. And they talked about that. And then someone else said, well, weirdly, I've never thought about it. I mean, I've said it and I believe it. I said, but I've never thought about what I really think historically. We had a really interesting conversation. And at the end, the woman who said she didn't believe in a literal resurrection says to me, well, she seems agitated when I'm talking to her. She says, well, I'm an elder in my church. And I uh, work in the Fairtree Cafe and on the leadership, the, on the, um, the worship team. She said, if I said that in my church, I would be taken off the eldership and probably the worship team. Probably be able to still be the Fairtree Coffee Shop because that's not the board. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, um, and I said, wow. But then I asked her, I said to her, well, you know, you know all the other elders. Do you not think that they've had these questions and sometimes think that there's no literal? And she was like, well, yeah, I guess they would. So it's like, okay, so the issue is not that you believe that subjectively, the issue is that you would say it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, because actually one of the secrets of a lot of megachurches is like, there's hard guns, like the worship team are just local musicians, hard to come in and play music. It's like the new one on the one, we all know it, but we pretend we don't, right? So the, the, the conservative kind of fundamentalist um, engagement with the liturgical technology is one of repressed like, um, and uh, oh, I could say more about it, but I won't. Um, but interesting, within liberalism, the, the, the standard way of engaging with the liturgical technology is cynical distance. Now, by cynical distance, what I mean is you go, well, it's a metaphor. This stuff is not really, you know, it's like it's a symbol. It's something you can have the doubts and not and question. So you have a cynical distance, a distance from the liturgical act. You can hear a sermon, a prayer, worship music, you know, God is a warrior, God is this or that, God is what Bonhoeffer calls Deus Ex Machina, who fixes everything. But you have a, you have a distance, a uh, symbolic, uh, cynical distance from it. You have your doubts and your questions. Um, interestingly, within conservative circles, you can not question the belief. I say subjectively, you can have the doubts, but you don't question them objectively. Um, the person who believes fully, by the way, is a real problem. Whenever you say, if you believe enough and have faith, you will see healing, right? That comes with a wink, which is, yeah, but if your kid's really sick, call an ambulance, right? <laughs> Everybody knows it except for someone who's in a psychotic structure, and then they really do believe it, and then you get a real nightmare because they actually don't call an ambulance. The kid dies, and the problem is the church can't say anything because they're like, well, like, oh, he actually did what we said without hearing the disavowed doubt that, that everybody else kind of knows. I, by the way, I was the one who didn't do the disavowed doubt. I, I got a conversion experience when I was 17. I was the person who destroyed my entire record collection at the beach. Today, just have to unsubscribe from Spotify. It's a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> but funnily enough, it's when you fully believe that you often see the, how it doesn't work. That's actually very, very key. Um, is if you, if, like, if you're sitting there in the congregation, you think, oh, if only I, you know, I, everything's difficult, I have doubts or whatever, but if I was really working for the church, if I was a minister, they're all having cappuccinos with Jesus out there, right? So in the, in the, in the, uh, in the office, I know what it is. Like, as long when you believe that, 
you actually have the fantasy that it would work and you just haven't got there. But when you get into the elder room, you realize it's no better. But I stayed your comment. But it's a really good opportunity because now you've done everything and you see it doesn't work and then you can get it somewhere better. But um, so, so sometimes you have to go all the way. That's why gamblers aren't addicted to winning. They're addicted to losing. Right? If you won all the time, you get boring. You know, you get money, but the boring the, the, the addiction is by losing, you keep a fantasy of if only I won, everything would be wonderful. That's why people say, why do people go to prosperity churches when it obviously doesn't work? Exactly, because it doesn't work, right? That's what keeps you addicted, is you keep going and hear yep. the thing of, like, if only I got the wealth, then everything would work out. If you got it, you'd realize it doesn't work, right? But, but by not getting it, you're caught up in the fantasy, between the fantasy. It's precisely the not working of the prosperity church that keeps you enslaved too. Anyway, um, so the turn of Christianity, oh yeah, this, the next move, here's the, here's the radical move, and this is what I want to say is that the future of church, for me, is not the conservative, repressed fight towards the liturgical technology, and neither is it a distancing from the liturgical technology, it is the liturgical technology distances itself from itself. It's very key, and you see it in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, um, this is a difficult concept to grasp, but I, I did a little thing recently uh, in Belfast with a group. I was talking to a secular group of about 100 people, and I, took, I stole the idea of Daryl Brown, who's a great uh, magician illusionist. But what I said is, I said, right, who doesn't believe in God here? Most of the hands went up. You don't believe in fairies, angels, supernatural, none of that. No, it's all rubbish. Right, okay, great. <laughs> then I asked, can you bring out your mobile phones and, and bring up a picture of someone that you love on your phone? Okay, okay, and in my pocket I brought out a piece of paper and I said, right. so in my hands here I've got this satanic prayer it's from the 16th century. And basically, you say this over somebody and you curse them. You put a curse over them, right? And um, so could somebody just come up and, and say the satanic prayer over, you know, this person you've got on your phone? Nobody moves. <laughs> <laughs> That's bizarre. I just asked you if you believed in any of this stuff. And you, were, you were actually laughing only five minutes ago, and now everyone's like stuck in their seats. <laughs> I'll say it over myself. Something like you go off the internet, changed a few words, something was ridiculous. Right? Like, the, the point being, I was trying to show them that they are very susceptible to actually uh, being converted. Which I used to do as an evangelist. It's super, super easy. Because you don't have to be smart, you just have to to people's anxiety and then they deal with the rationalization themselves. But the point being, like somebody, somebody might hear this story and go, oh yeah, that shows that they really believe in God or whatever. No, because that is the worst. I mean, if, if, like Paul Tillich says that that's the very God that the church has to exercise more than anyone else. Amen. The idea of a God who would, who would destroy your entire family because you read a piece of paper off the internet. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the superstitious God. That's, that's the most, like that's a God that is weirdly in us all. And we have to exorcise ourselves from very hard. So the, the issue is this. The weird thing is, it's not that you have to stop believing in, a, in the deus ex machina, the lost object. Is that the lost object has to start, stop believing in itself. What I mean by that is, just very quickly, this is what's called transference. If you go to an analyst, eventually the analyst becomes, at first they become a symbolic representation of maybe your father or your mother. You don't even realize you're doing it. Don't realize you're doing that. You just say to them, oh, you're going to hate me when I say this. Why, Why am I going to hate you when you say this? But like, oh, well, my mom would have hated this. 
And what you're doing is through transference, you're taking that previous relationship of these authority figures, and the analyst is, without even knowing it, is the authority figure, right? Is your mother or your father personified? To the extent that you start to dream about your analyst, they start to become part of your libidinal economy. At that point, real change can happen because now the analyst is anchored into your fantasy. And at that point, um, they can start to shift things. Because here's the thing, again, a Freudian insight is, if you've been trying to please your father all your life and they die, are you now free from trying to please your father? No. In fact, it's even worse now. There's no objective father to say, stop trying to please me, live your own life, right? So <laughs> they're dead in reality, but not in your subjectivity. When you go to the analysis, you then project out, they become the, the personification, without you knowing it, of the father through transference. And then they die there, as in they start to deconstruct in front of your very eyes. You realize that, so you become, because we're colonized by other people's desires, right? We don't just desire, we, we desire what we don't desire. We, des we are colonized by desire. And through transference, we can begin to work that through. The liturgical structure is, without, being, without people knowing it, that is the embodiment of the absolute, unconsciously for people. People go into church and they generally, just like someone goes into therapy and thinks the therapist is going to fix them, make them whole and complete. People go into church thinking God is going to make them whole and complete, fix everything. And just as in analysis, very gradually the analyst takes on the transference and then through taking on the transference, becoming the authority figure, and then basically dying. That's why analysts don't say very much. They're mute, they're dumb. They don't react in the way that you expect them to react. You begin to get freed from those internal experiences through it being enacted externally. So here's the trick. The trick is doubt, complexity, and ambiguity has to be written into the liturgical structure itself, right? It has to enact, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not enough for you to have cynical distance from the liturgical structure. The liturgical structure has to have cynical distance built into itself. It has to enact the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because basically what you do is you transfer God is the other, the, what, what's going on here, and then if, you give back to people a god of wholeness, completeness, who's going to like superstitious kind of notions. Then they don't get. No one gets freed from that from that notion. But when you embrace that complexity and ambiguity in the in the music, in the prayers, in the sermons, then you you experience my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The the, the the liturgical structure is doing that. And then you experience the state of Christ. You're, 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 you realize that it's not that I doubt my Christianity. No. It's that my Christianity is bringing me into the realm of doubt. It's, it's a subtle difference, but it's not like here's my Christianity and I have a distance towards it. It's no Christianity distances itself from itself. It, it helps you, helps free you from the lost object. And um, very concretely, it is the experience of the ripped curtains. It's, it's conversion. Conversion is the moment when momentarily you're freed from uh, all of the fantasies of all the things that can fix you. My own conversion is an example of this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to forget that. We're going to come to the end now. Right. So that's the turn of Christianity. You experience this loss, but that's not the end of the trick. You have to have the prestige. The prestige is the return of what was lost. But as I said at the beginning, it's not the, the, the same thing you get back. It's slightly different. 
the coin you get back is slightly different from the coin you left. So if the pledge of Christianity is the sacred object, what is the prestige of Christianity? Well, it's the sacred as a depth dimension in objects. So you get back the sacred, but not as an object that you love, but the sacred is the dimension that is manifest in the act of love itself. Think about it like love. Love does not exist as in I can see it and touch it. Love is not sublime, love is not meaningful, right? It's not an object, but love brings everything into existence. When you love, you see the person in their singularity, right? You're walking around, you see lots of people, but they don't exist. To exist means to stand out. This is the world of gray. But when you see someone you love, they are called into existence. They stand out, right? A friend of mine was in a train, she forgot her money. It's a train from New York, from Connecticut to New York. And she, the conductor, big guy, was going down getting the tickets. She's really embarrassed. You don't have a ticket, I've got no money. She says to the conductor, I'm so sorry, I don't have a ticket, I forgot my purse. She's going to get chopped off, get in trouble. And he sees that she's nervous, he's like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And then they chat, and they get talking, and they talk for most of the journey, and they share pictures of their kids and all of that. And as she's getting off the train, he, he turns to her and says, she says, thanks so much. And he says, no, 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 thank you. He says, it's just lovely to be seen. But of course, he's seen, he's seen by thousands of people every day, but not as someone that exists. Someone who stands out. So love calls things into existence. Love is not sublime. Love is what renders the world sublime. When you love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningful, even if you believe it's meaningless. And if you don't love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningless, even if you believe it's meaningful. Right? Love is what renders the world beautiful, sublime. And that's the third, sorry, the meaningful one. It's not meaningful. It renders the world meaningful. Things become meaningful in it. So in a sense, weirdly, love does not exist, it's not sublime, it's not meaningful, but when you give yourself over to love, it is the most preeminently existing, sublime, and meaningful of all things. It is this loss and return. And to bring this, try to bring this round, is that, that the notion of the liturgical technology is to help people through this journey. You come into the church looking for the sacred object, looking for the thing that will get you away from your suffering, your brokenness. But the liturgical technology helps you face that, look at it, actually wrestle with it, and says the sacred in God is in the midst of that. Not is there to fix that or break that, but it's in the very midst of that suffering. There God is. Um, in the next session, I'm going to maybe give practical examples of how this looks, because I don't have time to do it now. But this then is what basically communion is. Think about it. Communion is a magic trick. There is the sacred object right in front of you. There's the pledge. The turn, the disappearance of the bread and the wine in your body is gone. And then you're waiting for the prestige, you're waiting for the return, and you're sitting there trying to look away or whatever, and eventually it all ends. You get up, you start talking to each other, and there's Joel, he's just lost his job. Like, oh man, this night somebody might be able to help you out. Um, oh, there's Sam, who's just had a kid and it must be tough. And here, can I come around and like, you know, help a little bit while you're resting? That is the prestige, right? That is the epoch of the Holy Ghost. That is, the, that is where the liturgical technology is leading. It's actually in the struggle of life itself, in the loving and caring for each other, in losing ourselves for one another. There God is religionless Christianity, and every time we take the Eucharist, we experience this 
three-part magic trick. Mm. There's a beautiful Buddhist parable at the end of this. Um, and it's about this woman who has a beautiful baby girl, but the child dies and, and the woman's distraught. She, she wraps the child's body in linen and wraps the body to her room. And she goes in search of someone, of anyone who can resuscitate her child. She goes to witch doctors and faith healers and no one can help. But eventually someone says, high up in the mountains, away from everyone, there's a holy man who is supposedly so close to the divine he can even raise the dead. Maybe it's a myth. Maybe he's dead, but maybe go in search of him. So she does. She goes up into the mountains and after two days she finds a little hut. And there's a holy man and a little old man. She says, I don't know if you're the one they talk about. And I don't know if you can do anything, but my child has died. I must have her back. And the old man says, yes, I can help. He says, but what you have to do is you have to help me concoct a potion. And the potion requires mustard seeds from a home that has not been touched by suffering, that has not been scorched by that black sun that has touched your life. Go get me the mustard seeds. Come back. And so she goes into the village again. She goes from house to house, but she cannot find one home that has not been touched by suffering. And yet, as she hears the story of other people suffering, and as she is able to talk about her room, she is finally able to bury her child in the earth. Mother wants to find the answer, bring back the child. The holy man doesn't say, I can't do it, or I can do it, but creates a space where that mother can face that darkness, that brokenness, make peace with that in community until she's able to bury her child. That is the loss of God as a sacred object that will fix things, but the return of God is the depth dimension, the sacredness in the world itself. Okay, we'll stop there. Um, do we have a couple of 10 minutes? Sorry, there's a mic coming your way. Yeah, I think it was a ruin of laughter. Alpha Omega joke. I was in England when the Alpha course was being promulgated. Oh yeah. And so when you said it, it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> something else I learned in England. I went to a church, very small church, huge altar, in a kind of I forget the technical term of the Roman cross or the all sides equal cross. Four sides. It was such a large table and such a small congregation, they all could get around the table at once. I said, I love this. I go back home, we have 150 people, we can't get around the table, the table's very small. So I said, okay, come up one at a time, fill the table. Ironically, it stands just 12 people. We're all standing around the table and we share our communion. But I say to them, when we, at the, whatever the theme of the sermon is, I give them a phrase to say to each other, and then they serve each other. There's no deacons, I don't preside. Last week, we said we we're talking about abortion. One in four women will have an abortion. We're trying to ex ex exercise the stigma of abortion by having women stand up and say, I have an abortion. So I had all the women in the church count off, one, two, three, four. The fourth one would stand up and say, I'm the fourth, meaning I had an abortion. 
then men and women came to the communion table. First thing they do is they look at each other and they say, I'm number four. And then they offer the bread, they offer the cup, and they're dismissed. Do I have the prestige in the right order? I put it first, not last. I don't, give me, like, what do you mean by the prestige comes first and not the... Being able to say, I'm number four without shame. Yeah. To be free from that shame that they've carried all of their lives. They've never, not even told their husband that they had an abortion when they were 23. But in church that day, they can stand up and say, I'm number four. And I could hear in the voice of each woman, some said it timidly, I'm number four, just to go along. Yeah. Others stood up for the first time, I'm number four. Yeah. Okay, then what it sounds like to me is that you just have already done so much healthy work that you've brought the congregation to the point where they can do that. Because a lot of communities, you know, you can't, you know, it's kind of, it's actually, you can't do the prestige first. Like, you can't, it's like, there's a, I would say there's a, a necessary illusion that's required. Just like an analysis, the necessary illusion is that you think the analyst is going to fix you. The necessary illusion that the minister uses is that they think the church is going to fix them, right? That God is the, the, the deus ex machina, the object is going to be ruled in to get us away from our suffering. Here's my point. This is why some young people like this message and then think they can go in and blow it all up. But I know you have to let people almost imagine that very gradually through music and art, just like a singer-songwriter. Kierkegaard once said, what is a singer-songwriter? What is a poet? Somebody screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. So when they say that the poet sings to us again, you're saying a new disaster before you. So in other words, the, the, the poet says sorrowful things in a way that you can cope with. You connect with their deep suffering in a poetic way, and then gradually you get to the point where you can open up. So for me, just hearing that from the outside, I go like, you have obviously done, or your church and your community, you have to have done a lot of work to get to the point where people can mm. say that, and not postulate that, that the answer is beyond that, but the answer is that. So very good, well done. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Um, there's a, two hands I saw here and here, and there's a third and a fourth. We'll try and get to you as well, but maybe. But if not, we'll do Q&A in the next time. I, I have a Colombo type question. If the woman on the train had forgotten her purse, how is she able to share pictures of her children? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah. I probably misremembered that. See, that's, that, you should be a psychoanalyst or a detective. <laughs> uh, I'm the interfaith guest this weekend, and I'm Jewish. And I couldn't help thinking about the Kabbalistic description of the mystical side of Judaism, which says that actually uh, God is broken and that we are all broken vessels. And the way we repair the world is by doing good deeds, taking care of the sick, etc. Um, so your your thesis is really personally fascinating to me because I think part of the problem that people of faith have in general is this, the idea of perfection of what we're supposed to do with our lives, and and if we have a perfect God, 
Yeah. You know, it makes it impossible for us to ever reach that. But if we believe that God in some ways is broken, unless we can help repair the world with God, if we're co-partners, if we're, if we're conspirators, then we have a better chance of having a better life. And, and what a beautiful image of love that you invoke. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. And you're saying exactly the key. I have been scared of saying this for, I've been doing this for 20 years now, 25 years. And I, I'm only now more clearly saying what you said. There's kind of a reason for that. It's because I'm doing what I said you, you, we shouldn't do. Is that I, like, I don't want to say that like, we have to embrace our brokenness before a person's ready to hear that. So in some respects, I spent a lot of time writing other books, getting people to that point. Now I kind of say it, and the fear is now I say it clearly. It's, uh, it's off-putting. But you've articulated it beautifully in the, the poem from Padre Wotuma that you read, particularly. And Padre Wotuma was part of the community I was part of. He wrote a lot of the liturgies. That actually, here's the, I hate saying it, but I'm going to say it if you like to. Because like, you're going to disagree with me as soon as I say this. And that's good, because you can be wrong. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the temptation that we have, and I think within progressives and with liberal tradition especially, has is it is a temptation to to focus to wholeness to the non-fragmented thing which is not maybe not in this life but in the next life and for me the radical message is that there is actually a fragmentation uh in the heart of reality itself in the absolute and that is the healing and in some philosophy it can be called the weakness of god there's paul talks about this other fracture and it, it, sounds, it sounds like bad news. Here's the thing, what's the good news of Christianity? People think it's come to the front, you can have the answer be whole and complete. That sounds like great news. I could get a private chat with that message, right? No, that's bad news. The good news is life is crap and you don't have the answers. Come to the front. You want to come to the front for that? Come on, come on. Basically, life is shit and you don't have the answers, right? You can say that. Um, it's like, and you go, that's bad news. That's terrible news. No, that's good news. It's like when you can come to that place. This is what I call the loss of the loss of the lost object. <laughs> the loss of the loss of the lost object. If you're depressed, it's not because you've lost the lost object, the lost the loss of it. It's that you're still connected to it, you just don't have it, right? You're still too attached to it, right? The loss of the loss of the lost object is where you go, oh, Life is, it's actually the struggle, which is, by the way, this is what uh, the crucifixion is for me, right? You know I said about the object of desire and the object cause of desire? Can I say this very, I know I'm sorry, but very quickly, um, let's take a true example of two friends of mine, call them Jack and Jill, right? And um, Jack and Jill, they married for 10 years, and now they hardly, you know, they're still friends, but there's no desire left in the relationship, they, they're not sleeping together, whatever. And then Jack has an affair with Snow White. This is all their real names, by the way. Snow White. He has a brief affair with Snow White, and it's discovered. Jill finds out about it, and you go, "Okay, right? What's going to happen? Right? If you're an alien from outer space, you would come down, and you'd go, oh, right, well, Jack and Jill are going to split up. They don't. They're not really in a relationship as such anymore. She wants him out of the house. He says, well, it's not a marriage anyway. So obviously, they're going to split up. But of course, that doesn't happen, right? Within two weeks, Jack and Jill are." going away, they still hate each other, but they're going away a little kind of like uh, weekends together. Snow White is nowhere to be seen, right? You go like, why does that happen so often? And by the way, this is about the fourth time this has happened, right? Why is it they're caught in this structure? Well, think of it like this. Yeah, Jack here is, an is a typical obsessive. So 
For an obsessive, um, the closer you get to, um, basically for a substance, you desire what you don't have, right? So the object of desire is Snow White, and the object cause of desire is Jill, right? He really wants to be with Snow White because he can't be. Oh, if only we were together, if only I wasn't married, if only I didn't have kids and we could be together, right? So the object cause of desire is Jill, and the object of desire is, is Snow White. As soon as you take away the object cause of desire, it's like, oh, you can be with Snow White. You take away the desire. So he's like, I don't want to be with her, she's crazy. No, I'm not to never work, right? Like, what about Jill? Well, Jill, in this example, is very typically hysteric. And for hysteric, the object of desire, the object cause of desire is Snow White, and the object of desire is her husband. That her desire for her husband sparks off again by the fact that Snow White is in the picture. So now Snow White is threatening to take her husband away. So she finds herself desiring him again. She doesn't like him, she's pissed off, but she finds herself desiring him again, right? These are frenetic attempts for people to keep their desire alive. If you don't understand that, you can't figure out what's going on here. The point is, I'm saying, is that religions of the object of desire and the object cause don't work. What you need is where the object and the object cause of desire are in the same location. That's what the crucifixion is. The object cause of desire is Christ, who gets in the way of God. Christ is the one we have to crucify to get to God. And then we realize that it's the object cause of desire that's the object of God. It's the object God, the object of our desire. So the crucifixion is, is this unifying of object and object cause of desire, um, which means, um, and, and just using Camus on this, is that the conservative thinks the utopia is in the past. So the conservatives always look into the, the kingdom of God is behind us. We have to get back to it, right? The, the revolutionary thinks the kingdom of God is ahead of us. The utopic vision is in front of us. The problem is, both of them is a disaster, right? The utopic vision behind us, it's only a fantasy generated by a loss. And also the utopic vision ahead is if you ever get the utopia you want, you'll be the first to get killed, right? That's it. Most revolutionaries are killed by their own revolutions. So what's Camus' answer? Well, Camus' answer is the rebel. He's the perfect rebel, Marlon Brando, right? In the, was it, was it, was it, where he's in the, the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, where he's in this cafe and this woman says to him, Johnny, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? Johnny looks at her, what do you got? Right? That's the rebel. The rebel finds enjoyment in the struggle of life itself. So the revolutionary is not happy until they get the utopia. The conservative is not happy until they get that. There's, there's a certain, like, there is a happiness, but it's disavowed. They think they're not happy, but there is a, there's a, what's called jouissance, but, they're, but, but, they're, but they're suffering. The trick is to go, how do we enjoy the struggle for the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the struggle for the kingdom of God. Can't go within. This is the Christian way of saying. It. Anyway, so yeah, fragmented all that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> let's hear it from Peter.